Let me ask you this. You're listening to the NK News podcast, so you know more about North Korea than most. But how about the South? To really understand what's happening on the peninsula, you need to know about South Korea. And now you can, through our new Korea Pro news and analysis service. This is not your average news service. It's a thoroughly researched analysis of South Korea's politics, society, and economy from an international perspective. But you know what the cherry on top is? The absolute lack of commercial influences. No ads, no sponsored articles. It's just pure, objective analysis by a team of qualified specialists. And the best part? As a listener of this podcast, you get a 25% discount. All you have to do is use the coupon code PODCAST during your sign-up. So head over to careerpro.org slash podcast and start your journey with CareerPro. That's careerpro.org slash podcast. Podcast listeners, welcome to the NK News Podcast. This intro is recorded on Tuesday, the 12th of September, 2023. I'm joined via Zoom by Anton Sokolin. Anton, welcome back on the NK News Podcast. Hey, Jekyll. Great to be here. Now, of course, there are really only a couple of major stories that we have to discuss today, and you've been writing about both of them. So let's start with, I guess, the big news that all the media outlets are talking about. North Korea's leader, Kim Jong-un, is on a train to Russia. He may even be in Russia by now. What's going on? Right. Yeah, that's a very interesting topic, very interesting question. As of the moment, we know very little, but at least something, right? We definitely know that he departed. He definitely left North Korea. Yeah. And there are reports that he has already crossed into Russia over uh-huh. the French bridge, over the Tumangan River. And he could be en route to meet with uh, Vladimir Putin. Now, why would he be meeting President Putin? Right. Uh, Why would he meet? Yeah, that's a good question. That's very interesting. Everybody's been speculating. Well, uh, there's a lot of speculation going on, right? And it's very difficult to say for sure what uh, what could be the point of this uh, whole visit. But at the same time, we understand, right, that there has been a lot of talk about potential arms supplies, right, transfers of technology. And at the same time, for North Korea, I assume uh, it would be an interesting, let's say, item on the agenda to discuss potential the potential return of North Korean workers back to uh-huh. Russia and their participation in the reconstruction projects in Ukraine. Uh-huh. In, in occupied Ukraine. That's correct, yes. Right. Okay. Now, uh, what has uh, the Russian government said about this so far? So far, very little. They've been very secretive. As you, as you guys have seen, probably, they are only supplying us with bits of information. They have, they had been uh, holding out the information till the very last moment. Yeah. Like Peskov was negating this. Th- right, the Peskov, whole... I should interrupt. That Peskov is uh, President Putin's spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov. Yes, Vladimir Putin's spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov. He basically denied any kind of reports about this visit, the potential visit. But at the same time, just a few hours later, they broke the news saying that, oh, oh actual Putin uh, had invited Kim Jong-un mm-hmm. to visit Russia. So uh, they're being very secretive. There is very little credible information around. but the. I, I, I gotta say, the local media, Russian local media, has been speculating that uh, since Putin is about to visit a cosmodrome, right? So rocket missile, uh-huh. rocket 
launch pad located yeah. in the Amur region, uh, a bit up north from Vladivostok, that Kim might be going there as well. Of course, there is no proof where we don't know for sure, but that talk has been going on around. And there is this uh, East Economic Forum that happens, uh, I think it's every year, happening in Vladivostok around this time. So the timing is interesting, isn't it? It is. But at the same time, we are not seeing any signs, like those usual signs of any North Korean presence. For example, uh -huh. uh, in, uh, in 2019, uh, when I was also covering this visit, we've, we saw so many like flags, we saw some increased security measures, yeah. Yeah. Uh, near the train station where Kim would have arrived. We saw a presence of police officers and generally the city looked more festive, more mm -hmm. kind of like welcoming towards the great uh, North Korean leader. Yeah. But at the same time, we're not seeing it anything like this right now, right. which is interesting. At the yeah. same time, sorry, Jacko, I got to mention this too. At the same time, uh, the local government, for example, pretty generously welcomed the Lao, the delegation from Lao, mm. and, which kind of like contrasts with this whole mysterious uh, yeah. <laughs> mystery around Kim, Kim's visit. Now, Kim Jong-un, like his uh, late father, Kim Jong-il, prefers to travel overseas by train when he goes sure. rather than flying. And so he is on his private sort of dark green train into Vladivostok. Do we know why he prefers traveling by train rather than flying? Because it's much quicker to fly from Pyongyang to Vladivostok than to go there by train, isn't it? Well, as for those reasons, we got to ask him <laughs> ask him himself. I, I don't yeah. really know the answer. I can only speculate. But my probably answer, and you would anticipate it, would be safety, right? So right. it's just safer. It's much more safer to, to travel by train because, of course, you can control the situation. There's a whole bunch of people traveling with you. The only weak spot in this link, right, where something dangerous could happen is that uh, friendship breach in, over the Tumangan River. Uh -huh. So everything is pretty much predictable. And I think that just reduces the overall risk of, of the whole of operation. So that would yeah. be just my view do we know who's traveling with kim jong-un on his train oh yes there's a whole bunch of officials right so like uh, we definitely know that there is a, a foreign minister a north korea's foreign minister trison he Park John Chon, who's been recently kind of re rehabilitated. The guy had uh, vanished um, last what uh, last winter, and yeah. now he suddenly reappeared, being participating in all these events going on in Pyongyang, festive events. And yeah, and, and some other people that I probably do not remember. <laughs> I see, I see. Now, this all started last week when um, the New York Times ran an article about the uh, alleged plans by Kim Jong-un, and that was really interesting how they broke that they got that through some anonymous sources in the intelligence community it seems right yeah that's correct and at the same time we we, we heard similar reports from the south korean side as well yeah like the national intelligence service south korea's national intelligence service also kind of like implied that there could be certain meetings or there could be potential military drills or some more increased military cooperation between yeah. uh, China and North Korea. So, yeah, we, we, we've been uh, seeing quite many reports, sometimes conflicting, though. <laughs> yeah, it, it's going to be really interesting to see what happened there. The last visit uh, that Kim Jong-un made, uh, I guess, anywhere overseas was in late April 2019, right? That was when he, he right. went to Vladivostok. Was it also 
for the East Economic Forum, or was that just strictly for a, a Putin-Kim meeting? As far as I remember, he did participate in the in the forum. Ah. I could be wrong. We we gotta check. But I remember there was a huge reception. They met yeah. him with a huge. They threw him a huge welcome and pompous party at the train station. They even made a special wooden <laughs> podium for him yeah. to get off the train. Yeah, it, it was interesting. But uh, other than that, the meeting went pretty unremarkably and. Mm. I do not re recall any significant breakthroughs uh, coming out of that summit. Yeah. Well, uh, this is his first trip overseas since COVID pandemic. So do keep an eye on that. And listeners, you can find uh, more stories at NK News. This one that came out just yesterday, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un to visit Russia in coming days, Colin Kremlin. That's it by Anton. And Anton is going to keep uh, following the story. Now, let's also talk about the 75th anniversary of the founding of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, the DPRK, as North Korea likes to call itself. There was another parade. I'm still not even fully recovered from the parade for the commemoration of the armistice signing in July. And now we've got one for 75 years of North Korea. Uh, did you watch this parade? I have to confess, I did not. Well, <laughs> since I've been, I was covering the uh, the event. Of course, I had to watch it. Uh, yeah. That was, I, I have to underscore, I had to watch it. I didn't thoroughly <laughs> enjoy it. But was it very different from the July parade? It was very different. Uh, well, this it was the same. Uh, let's let's say it was at the same level of grandeur, yes. but at the same time, it didn't feature as many interesting things as, as for example the july 27th parade because mm. obviously there were no nukes there were no drones but there were also quite a few interesting things if you want to talk about it i can say yes, a few words. please give us a, give us your insights uh it was very interesting to see those um trucks they called them concealed trucks carrying multiple rocket launchers mm. and there were like basically two groups of trucks red ones and white ones and in and they are under their roofs they had mounted basically the multiple rocket launchers and that's a very interesting thing because it kind of highlights that these um, participants who are largely the worker peasant red guards they have technological capacity to actually carry out pretty pretty serious uh, missions right yeah. uh, offense uh, missions and and it's and it's interesting in itself because also it, it highlights that they are working on it and they are trying to implement those new techniques uh, recently i've been observing this sort of techniques of hiding multiple rocket launchers inside trucks uh, concealed inside trucks in mm -hmm. iran actually though they <laughs> the iranian counterparts they kind of stayed clear of using red <laughs> ah. color or, or white color because uh Obviously, that doesn't really conceal the trucks, does it? Right, right. Yeah, so these trucks are just normal. You can find the photographs on the uh, the NK News website at the article, Kim Jong-un celebrates 75 years of North Korea with mass militia parade. And you can see these photographs of what look like uh, red dump trucks. But when you raise the lid, yeah, inside, uh, instead of a normal cargo load, you see uh, multiple rocket launches. Right, that's correct. Yeah. Uh, now, were there uh, there were also foreign visitors at this parade too, weren't there? Yes, but again, I don't think that, for example, Russians announced that their presence at the parade and at celebratory events would be loud or prominent, mm. and I don't think they live the, uh, up to the hype because. Mm. 
Uh, actually, yeah, it, even though the North Russian military orchestra did perform in Pyongyang, they didn't perform it for everyone during the parade. There was a special session at the theater where they had their little concert playing Russian patriotic and wartime songs, mixing them with some uh, North Korean folk and also wartime songs. But at the same time, I think uh, the main attention was actually on the Chinese delegation because yeah. this time around, Beijing dispatched a slightly uh, a delegation of slightly higher level mm. and that kind of indicates a little it could indicate a little shift in Beijing's stance on uh, North Korea and its rapprochement with Russia uh, yeah just I said the uh, Chinese vice premier and Politburo member Liu Guozhong correct yeah now uh, Kim Jong-un and his daughter were both there were there any speeches made no speeches, uh, but at the same time, he took uh, part in some photo sessions with yeah. the spectators, with uh, the parade participants on the, in subsequent days. On, the only speech I know was uh, given by Prime Minister Kim Dok-kun during mm. a closed kind of like private banquet for labor innovators celebrating oh, yeah. their achievements in, you know, developing the, the country's economy and so on. But nothing remarkable to actually to touch on i'm sorry I, I, this one is not really uh, as interesting as the as the july 27th event. right right so uh, it really seems that uh, russia and china are kind of courting north korea in a way trying to show influence and and closeness to uh, to north korea this must be something that makes pyongyang and kim jong-un quite happy i guess Certainly it should, but at the same, uh, always we need to remember that the Pyongyang regime for years has been very, um, has shown a very uh, great talent of manipulating both Moscow and Beijing uh, to get its own, uh, to get benefits out of them. And Kim Il-sung was a great diplomat uh, maneuvering in between Beijing and, and Moscow. Kim Jong-il continued this uh, trend and I'm I am certain Kim Jong-un is also going to perform a similar feat. Right. Now, just a quick thing on the, uh, the Korean wording. I understand that the North Korean state media called this particular parade a militia parade or a Mingan Muryog Yolbyongshik rather than a parade of paramilitary and public security forces or Mingan Mit Anjon Muryog Yolbyongshik. What is the difference? <laughs> uh, that's a good question, actually. So uh, the difference is uh, a very, uh, very simple, is that during the pandemic, right? So when, when we had this paramilitary parade last time, it was in yeah. 2021, it was in the midst of uh, the COVID pandemic. And the regime's priority was mostly on protecting its citizens from COVID, from the coronavirus, and maintaining public order. And that was the focus of this parade. They were featuring, for example, they featured those anti-epidemiology anti units. Oh, yes. Like wearing those biohazard suits. Right. Then they featured, uh, for example, police officers, canine units, and so on. Uh, this time around, we are seeing the, um, that the focus has shifted a little bit towards the worker peasants, red guards, mm -hmm. carrying weapons, armed students, armed factory workers, uh, those uh, multiple missile launchers mounted on uh, trucks. Uh, which kind of kind of highlights that the regime is taking more offensive state uh, right. stance, and it is focusing more on actually like its uh, striking capabilities. And uh, at the same time, it kind of highlights that the worker uh, peasant uh, red guards they are taking 
let's say, more central stage. Mm. Gosh, wow. Okay, it's very interesting. And I do encourage our listeners again to go back to the, the NK News uh, website to look at the article that Anton wrote, Kim Jong-un celebrates 75 years of North Korea with mass militia parade. And there are uh, really quite some spectacular photographs there that have been taken from the Rudong Shinmun or from KCTV. So do go and have a look at that. Anton, thank you for coming on the NK News podcast today. Listeners, stick around because after this break, we'll have a, a long interview that I recorded with Sid Seiler, a retired US government intelligence officer. Thanks very much, Anton. Thank you, Jacko. Have a good day. Attention, North Korea portfolio professionals. Are you in need of more than just sloppy and spotty South Korean news coverage on the DPRK? If so, I present to you NK Pro. Born from the established news gathering reputation of NK News, NK Pro leverages staff experience and top-notch technology to provide subscribers with superior knowledge and tools to achieve their goals. Expect daily analysis, exclusive tools, and a suite of research tools that cover everything from North Korean state media to the whereabouts of DPRK vessels and aircraft. How cool is that? In a world where the landscape of North Korea seems unknowable to many, NK Pro cuts through the noise and provides you with the quality, reliability, and timeliness you need. Stay ahead, stay informed, and master the landscape with NK Pro. Trust me, it's a game changer. Interested? Visit nknews.org/professionals to claim your free 30-day trial of NK Pro. Once again, that's nknews.org/professionals. For our longer interview today, joining me via Zoom in the east of the United States is Mr. Sidney Seiler, now retired, but with over 42 years working in the U.S. government on Korean Peninsula issues as a senior policymaker, senior negotiator, senior executive manager, and intelligence officer in almost every possible U.S. military and civilian intelligence agency. You can find Sid on Twitter at Sid Seiler. Welcome on the show, Sid. Uh, thank you, Jacko, for inviting me, and, and thank you, listeners, for taking the time to at least click uh, once on this podcast. I'm sure they won't regret it. Uh, Sid, looking through your resume, it seems that you have made a long march through the U.S. institutions of intelligence gathering and analysis. How would you sum it up? Very fortunate and blessed. It's a very non-traditional career that I uh, that I chose. Certainly. There's not not a lot of people like you. Now, you wrote a biography of uh, Kim Il-sung, published in 1994, the year that he died, called Kim Il-sung, 1941 to 1948, The Creation of a Legend, The Building of a Regime. I confess that I've never been able to get a copy of this book, although not through lack of trying, so I haven't read it. Uh, speaking as its author and looking back almost 30 years later, has it stood the test of time? I think it has. It was an interesting book in that uh, it came out at, at the time when there was the book was built around a Soviet Korean, so somebody who was third generation by the time he's up in Khabarovsk with Kim Il-sung uh, just prior to liberation. He ends up finally becoming the head of the KPA operations department during the war. Mm. And, and so it was one of the firsthand kind of witnesses, testimonies of somebody who, who was with Kim at the time. And so I compared it to other his, his histories of Kim Il-sung, uh, Pekbong, the North Korean history, of course, Sode Suk's great work, 
Yeah, the scallopine only, and so it was a. It it added to the scholarship at the time. It's no earth moving uh, conclusion, but the idea that you know the Soviet Union uh, set up Kim, and Kim from the very beginning did everything possible to try to establish some type of uh, independence and sovereignty. Well, nevertheless, dependent on the Soviet Union, it really shaped North Korea's, I think, view of the outside world. And if mm-hmm. I and diplomacy writ large, how to manage relationships of great powers. And maybe I'll I'll, I'll solve the problem of access by uh, dusting it off and at least trying to get a Kindle version up in the first few months. That would be of, great. Yes, um, I was actually about to ask you whether now that you're retired, you you want to go back and, and write a, a supplementary chapter or update it and then, yeah, release a Kindle version. So that, that would be a very good thing. I might consider it. From, uh, from 1995 till 2002, you worked at the uh, Foreign Broadcast Information Service. Not a lot of people have heard about the FBIS. What did FBIS do and, and, and what is it called now? Well, FBIS is currently called the Open Source Enterprise. And uh, you can you know do some searches on Open Source Enterprise, Open, Search, uh, Center, uh, open Source Center. And, and what you have is an organization that was set up during World War II primarily to, to, to focus on uh, German uh, propaganda and other you know, adversaries, public media statements in order to bring open source intelligence into the, the customers back in the United States. And as we look at the importance of open source over the years, you can imagine the important role that you know, FBIS played and particularly on centrally controlled media like the Soviet Union, China, Cuba, Vietnam, North Korea. These were areas where you know the, the, the methodology of media analysis really became important, and FBIS was right there as the organization tasked with doing that. Mm. And was it part of or is it linked to the CIA? FBIS has a long history, and I just defer to kind of the Internet says about its affiliations over time. Hmm. Uh, but it certainly did play the prominent role in the U.S. government as the open source enterprise, uh, yeah. even before it had the name open source enterprise. Right. And what was your role as media analyst there? Well, you know, it's interesting. When I first uh, joined the organization, I had had previous experience with the language trained to be a, a signals intelligence uh, collector hmm. over the years. And I had uh, experience with North Korea. So I had the language. North Korea, some academic background behind me by the time uh, that I applied. And so I was able to bring together all the various facets of understanding the country, the area, as well as, you know, the issues involved, and I guess most fundamentally the language. Mm. Now, North Korea has a lot of publications. I mean, it has several daily newspapers, as well as the uh, the monthly journals and magazines. What in general, what kinds of things can we glean from analyzing North Korea's media? Jacko, that's a really great question because it, you know, a lot of people have uh, taken shots at this. It requires a lot of work, a lot of effort, because it uh, involves looking at expressions, authority levels over time in terms of what type of messaging the regime is putting out what is domestically oriented, what is externally oriented. Mm-hmm. And, and just if you if you start from the understanding that this number one goal is to project an image, maybe true, it may be a, a distortion of the truth. I'd like to use semi-Potemkin a lot with North Korea because when you, you strip back the layers, you see a little bit of, of, of a kernel of truth. You see a lot of exaggeration, histrionics, threats that never come into play. And so I do believe that sustained following of North Korean media 
even in its externally oriented propaganda, can provide you a really good insight into North Korea's at least professed thinking on issues mm-hmm. and what type of uh, image they're trying to project to the outside audience. Okay, so that that's a good start. You were doing that for well, seven years, according to your resume, and then you moved into the CIA, where you held three different positions in the, the George W. Bush years. Uh, generally speaking, what is the role of the Central Intelligence Agency in South Korea? Well, I mean, the role of the Central Intelligence Community writ large is broadly broken into the operational work that the Director of Operations conducts, the analytic work of the Directorate of Analysis, what used to be called the Directorate of Intelligence, and, and of course, a lot of other functions in the science and technology realm, the digital realm, as well as the support mechanisms that you would expect. So there's an element of collection and there's an element of analysis. And, you know, the CIA, there's 18 or so intelligence organizations in the U.S. government. Right. And and that includes a lot of uh, intelligence officers that are dedicated to and support organizations to which they're affiliated, like State Department's Intelligence and Research Office, which supports State Department, the Defense Intelligence Agency, primary customers, as you would imagine, you know, Department of Defense and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Treasury, Department of Energy, Department of Homeland Security. CIA is the one organization that that stands alone and directly reports its uh, director, not so much as a co-equal with the ODNI. The ODNI does integrate and oversee the intelligence community. The CIA is is front and center, particularly in providing executive analytic support, collection and, and analysis for the key policymakers, uh, the president, uh, national security advisor, and of course, department directors, department and agency directors across government. Okay, now the, the CIA has a, a, a long and storied history in South Korea, going back to the Korean War, when I think uh, one of its early offices was uh, set up by uh, Jack Singlob in the Tremore Hotel, which is the now called the Chungjong Apartment, still stands in downtown Seoul, just a couple of blocks from where I live. I wonder if you could uh, dispel some of the myths and rumors around the CIA in Korea. There are Koreans from the 1980s demonstration movement who see the dark hand of the CIA in every uh, anti-democracy plot. And I've also heard people on the left accuse North Korean defectors of being funded by the CIA uh, to spread misinformation about the North. Well, let me just say, I mean, conspiracy theories are are fun, aren't they? I remember they uh, one one part of my career was involved with doing, you know, looking at translations about allegations and speculations and you know, at, at the end of the day, you have a professional intelligence organization that's out there. You've got the, the Republic of Korea as a close ally. And, you know, the the amount of people who are willing to not not so much defend North Korea, as it were, but but we're, you know, we're to question uh, U.S. motives and, of, and intentions is just too many to address to really completely answer that question to anybody's satisfaction. And even if you try, people won't be convinced. Fair enough. During your time with the CIA in Korea, what was the level of collaboration across the 18 U.S. intelligence agencies and organizations that you mentioned? Was it was it good? You know, the uh, the challenge of collaboration uh, is is one of the reasons, uh, you know, integrating these various collectors and, and analytic efforts and making sure that we're addressing the key intelligence requirements that are levied on the community, starting from the president on down. And that's why in 2006, the uh, 2005, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence was stood up 
so that it could begin to integrate those organizations. And, and you know, I, I, it was interesting. If you look at the, over time, the history of the evolution of IT capabilities, the ability of video conferences, ability to, to you know, communicate in various ways. I've seen a, a real gradual improvement and, and institutionalization of collaboration among those agencies. So, hmm. you know, as it sounds like a large number of agencies and large numbers of officers, you know, the, the collaboration between these offices is greater than it's ever been. And that allows you, you know, as one would suspect to, um, you know, look at targets, hard targets, North Korea, not surprisingly, is one hmm. of them, and come up with creative approaches in, in order to kind of integrate all the various capabilities that various intelligence disciplines, as we call them, signals intelligence, uh, geospatial intelligence, open source intelligence, uh, human intelligence, uh, to be able to integrate all those is the job of the ODNI. And it, and it works really well, I believe. I think as you, as you look at uh, the degree of collaboration, that uh, these habits of collaboration that have been introduced, particularly with the standing up of the office of the DNI. I, as I look back over the last couple of decades, there's been great progress in this arena. Would you say that you've seen personal rivalries or enmities trip up this collaboration sometimes? I don't really think so. The The way that the, uh, the community is integrated and the checks and balances and the, the number of people, I really do believe we're in a we're in a profession where people take pride in their work and maybe they'll say, you know, human intelligence is the best. Well, up at NSA, you might hear singles intelligence is the best or open source enterprise officers might tell you why you can, you can know under, and understand everything through open source. That type right. of, of uh, pride and profession is to be understood. But I, I don't, over the course of my 40 some years, I, I don't recall our efforts uh, against an issue, against the target either on the collection or analytics side, ever having been impeded because of some bureaucratic maneuvering or efforts to undermine a counterpart. And I'm also wondering about collaboration between U.S. and Korean agencies. Part of your time with the CIA was during the uh, normal Hyun administration in South Korea. Was that a difficult time for Intel sharing? And to what extent does intel cooperation and sharing between the united states and the republic of korea go up or down depending on who is president well i think what's most important is you know every leader and the political officials that they bring into positions to run agencies departments and ministries come in with preconceived notions in this case of of north korea the nature of the regime its objectives the uh potential benefits to be had from engaging, the need at times to emphasize deterrence, you know, what's the mix of carrots and sticks that uh, should be used in approaching a counterpart? How do you meet your bases and, you know, your support base, whether you're on the progressive or conservative side, there are expectations of your North Korea policy. People in those positions come with preconceived notions. And, and then you know, they come into contact with the intelligence, either the intelligence that we're collecting or the intelligence that we're analyzing. And, and that is impacting their thoughts. And they all have potential inclination to interpret it in a certain way, et cetera. But I think the intelligence community's goal, and what I've seen over the course of, of 40 years of working this issue, is that we work hard to develop a, a shared 
what we might call shared situational awareness, both in terms of kind of tangible, empirical evidence of capabilities and advancements, and then our more softer, maybe they're not necessarily subjective, but at times when you're looking at intent and you're looking at, you know, what's the next, what is Kim Jong-un seeking to accomplish? You know, was Kim Jong-il ever serious about negotiations in the six-party talks when we entered into the, the going back to 1994, the very uh, agreed framework itself. Mm. You know, all these assessments involve a certain degree of kind of intuitive, logical pieces to, accom- to accommodate the uh, empirical. And there are going to be differences of opinion, but at least when you're sitting and talking and sharing these observations and you understand why the, your counterpart may be thinking this way about why now is the time to pursue policy A, policy B, policy C. I, I think you know this type of shared understanding is a departure point for good policy. And I think that having been inside again I mean, 40 years I, I, from from Reagan onward and from Chunduan onward, I've seen the changes in, in administrations on both sides. And the shifts, the shocks to that system are not as great as one might otherwise expect them to have been. Hmm. Okay. So to, to come back to the original question, that then uh, when you were there uh, during the Norman administration, U.S.-Korea collaboration was actually pretty much the same as it was through other presidencies. I mean, there were differences in perceptions of the North. There was you know, debates over how confident we were in intelligence assessments of North Korea. Because remember, where we found ourselves during that time period was in the aftermath of a, a collapse of the agreed framework yeah. toward following the October 2002 visit of Assistant Secretary Jim Kelly to to Pyongyang to confront them on their U.S. assessments that North Korea was pursuing a production-scale uranium enrichment program for weapons use. And of course, from that point onward, you have the debate, was it worth walking away from the agreed framework? Should we try to have engaged? And there's a lot of fiction around you know, what took place during Jim Kelly's visit and then whether North Korea was ever serious about picking up the pieces after we found out about the uranium enrichment program. And so there was a there was during that time period uncertainties, debates, you know, questions about at the time you we used to use hear the expression, it's the plutonium stupid. In other words, you get the plutonium deal, you can ignore the highly enriched uranium deal uh, because it wasn't quite clear what it was at the time. So you had those differences of of opinion. Mm. Those were really, you know, two two observations. One, those were tactical differences of opinion that as time went on, uh, uh, disappeared. And second of all, the consistency in North Korea's behavior. There was never a time when our policy towards North Korea or our approach to the dialogue was impacted by either an erroneous assessment on in, in the intelligence side or uncertainty or, or differences of opinion. It, it was re- it's really been Pyongyang that repeatedly chooses, chooses its nuclear program over improved relationship uh, relations with the U.S. over improved relations with the with the South. In a word, what's your assessment? Was North Korea ever serious about the agreed framework uh, and the six party talks? My own sense after the fact is that uh, diplomacy from the very beginning has been primarily designed to buy time for the program to get to where it has been today. 
did they have a master timeline that would have said, you know, 2006, we'll have our first nuclear test. 2013, we'll declare Byungjin and repurpose lowly and low enriched uranium to high enriched uranium. And then in 2016 to 2017, I, I don't think it was that, that this was not some grand master plan. But if you yeah. look at North Korea's behavior over time, particularly the difficulties we had during the agreed framework and trying to make progress, getting accountability of the of the first, the uncertain fuel rod reprocessing that led some analysts to believe that the North had one to two weapons worth of, of plutonium. North Korea's un, unwillingness to come clean on that, North Korea's unwillingness to actively pursue an improvement of relations with the United States. And then ultimately the timeline along which North Korea begins to explore the path of uranium enrichment. I have the intellectual integrity, I hope, to say I might be convinced otherwise, maybe in the 94, 95, 96 time period. And don't get me wrong, I'm sure that our outstanding negotiators met with some diplomats on the DPRK side who were really interested in the potential path for an open and new relationship mm. with the United States. But that doesn't seem to have been ever, you know, the goal of, of North Korea's diplomacy. And as you look at how over the years, Kang Suk Chu, Kim Gaeguan, Che Sun Hee, you know, these kind of leaders and heroes, as they were, of North Korea's diplomacy towards the United States, they were all held high for their accomplishments, not in making a breakthrough with Washington, but rather buying the time and creating the diplomatic environment necessary to allow North Korea to, to progressively and methodically advance its nuclear missile capabilities. Yes, I, I see. Okay, uh, coming back to your uh, your career. So in, in 2006, the year of the first North Korean nuclear test, you joined the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, which you talked about before, about its role in coordinating analysis and intel from different agencies. And then in 2011, you went to the National Security Council. You became National Security Council Staff Director for Korea in the White House. Was this a this move a jump from analysis into policy making or at least policy advice? Uh, essentially, the interesting thing about the Office of the Director of National Intelligence is it because of its integrating and overseeing role, it's 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 the one intelligence community with with some of the closest ties to policy, mm -hmm. and it, it just happened to be at the time, you know, when when I moved there in in two thousand and six, together with Joe Detrani, just a great, outstanding intelligence officer, a diplomat. He served as special envoy for six party talks, yeah. as I would later, uh, and we we stood up the office together. You know, from the very beginning, you know, we were very aggressively involved, actively involved on the policy side. And you think about what happened that time. You had the nuclear test, but perhaps even more importantly, you had progress under the first and second initial action plans from the, the six-party talks that were built on the 2005 September 19th joint statement. So with Sung Kim and Chris Hill out there negotiating, we had the destruction of the cooling tower. We had the handing over of records. We had uh, an initial declaration on the North Korea side. And then, you know, we had the continuing discussions about highly enriched uranium and how important was it Did we need, how, how could we get it in there? How could we verify? There was a lot of integrated work between uh, the ODNI North Korea Mission Manager Office and, and the White House and State Department. Department of Energy, uh, Department of Defense. And so that type of, even though I was still wearing the intelligence community hat, my first foray into the deep policy uh, making and the negotiations 
uh, that eventually with following the change in administrations in two years serving the first two years of the Obama administration serving in the IC hat, then I moved down to the NSC. Is that common that people in the, the intelligence community end up helping to shape and direct policy on North Korea? So if you look at the history of, of NSC officers over time, I like Sumi Terry, who is well known to the uh, yep. outside world for her, her current great work on North Korea. And Sumi has a TIA background, spent some time at the NSC. So there, there are a handful you know, I had also the blessing of being involved in negotiations with North Korea at a time when we were actually talking so that, you know, that made it, there was a little bit of that dimension to it. But the 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 value of such assignment is so great because, first of all, it allows you to see how foreign policy decisions are made and implemented, mm-hmm. unlike any international relations textbook you'll ever read, yeah. right? And you understand the dynamics of people, relationships, bureaucracies, interests, views, et cetera. And in addition to understanding how that works, so if you're a foreign policy analyst, you can consider that when you look at how North Korea may be making decisions, what are the similarities, what are the differences? But perhaps more important, you see intelligence used and digested. What is it that works? How do you get the right product? accurate, high quality, relevant, and timely. Mm-hmm. So that is in the policymaker's hand at a time when when a decision has to be made. And that's a very valuable lesson to have, have been learned during my time there at the NSC. I'm wondering how important is it that uh, policymaking on uh, North Korean issues be led by people like yourself who have a, a thorough and long-term understanding of Korea and a facility with the Korean language? You know, it's crucial. And as I look at the history going back, at least who I knew, like Victor Cha, I remember when Victor took was the Korea, the Asia director. Mm -hmm. We have a a system in which you have some real deep expertise of the type you just talked about, feeding at, at the director level, even at the senior director level. And then, you know, when you look at, you know, decisions that are being made at, you know, the principals committee by Department heads, Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, et cetera. When when you look at the way that these decisions are made and fed by that type of deep analysis, at the same time, decisions made in light of multiple issues, you know, not just for North Korea, for example, being uh, a China-related issue, but an Asia-related issue, a a non-proliferation-related issue, Mm. and of course, competing with other issues that are around the world. As I walked the, the hallways of the Eisenhower Executive Office building, that big gray building next to the White House where the NSC and some other elements sit, it, it's a reminder of just how well-staffed we are to do this around the world uh, across issues. Now, in 2015, you became the uh, U.S. Special Envoy for six-party talks at the ambassador level. You were there for about a year. But to my recollection, the six-party talks ended either in 2009 or in 2012, depending on when you're counting. So did getting this job feel like being put out to pasture a little bit? No, it was actually a job that I actively uh, pursued. Having mm. uh, really, It's such hard work at the National Security Council. I, I can't, you know, you have, to, you have to work there to understand it. It's not just long hours. It's long, intense hours mm. or quick turnarounds. And so uh, leaving uh, the White House and having had this experience negotiating with North Koreans, I wanted that to continue in the special envoy position. Now, we kept the title Six Party Talks in play for a number of years. 
largely because we thought that we had accomplished that starting with the Bush administration uh, efforts and then followed up by the Obama administration, we had accomplished a lot in uh, multilateralizing the issue, you know, not allowing this to be a U.S. DPRK issue because it never yeah. was. It's a U.S. DPRK issue to the degree that Pyongyang's intent is to break the alliance between Washington and Seoul by, you know, marginalizing or sidelining the United States. But this is really an issue that requires a multilateral solution. And it was certainly valuable in keeping particularly China and maybe to a lesser degree, but nevertheless, importantly, Russia as stakeholders in the issue. And in the six-party talks framework itself, you know, particularly if you look at September 19th, 2005 joint statement, that is such an excellent statement that lays out uh, together with, again, the, the initial and second phase action statements that came out, I believe, 2007 or eight. The roadmap, the the question of what does no, what are we expecting of North Korea, and what can North Korea expect of the outside world in terms of a path toward a denuclearized Korea Peninsula that included normalization of U.S. DPRK relations, Japan DPRK relations, economic aid and assistance, and a uh, you know a security assurance, Northeast Asia security infra uh, kind of infrastructure. Uh, sub-working groups for each of those, you had in in, in that document the, the framework mm. for a road to denuclearization. So when I heard people later on say North Korea doesn't know what denuclearization is, mm. and we have different definitions, we only have different definitions to the degree that North Korea believes that denuclearization on the peninsula, that, that they are the problem. And and, and again, that we, we had a commitment at least diplomatically, rhetorically, at least from from China, from uh, Russia, we never mm. gave up on denuclearization. So there's a value in keeping the six-party talks framework in mind. And we didn't do so in a naive denial of what happened either in 2008 in terms of not being able to get the verification necessary uh, to move forward on uranium enrichment or the 2009 nuclear test or the 2013 you know, we, we were very realistic about what happened, but the Obama administration, in, sp in spite of accusations that had some type of strategic patience approach, right. worked very hard, even after those setbacks with a leap day understanding, the, the Byung-Jin declaration in 2013. Up to, up to the end, the, the Obama administration left open the door for dialogue and pursued it. And so was there a, a, a hope or an expectation at the time that you were the U.S. Special Envoy, that the six-party talks might be revived again? Well, you know, the, our goal at the time was to bring DPRK back to the table and to work, you know, with China to, toward that end. Yeah. And there was a lot of robust diplomacy in that 2014-2015 uh, uh, time period toward that end. Ultimately, North Korea, yeah, I mean, 2013 was a, a rather definitive declaration that uh, North Korea had a single focus on expanding its nuclear weapons program. You know, you could argue even in 2008, they had declared the six-party talks dead, wow. denuclearization dead, and the, and, the, and the leap to understanding was doomed to failure. But that's just evidence, not of, of some naivete, but rather it's evidence of how administration after administration, up to and including the Trump administration, have made a run, a real sincere run, right. at trying to find a diplomatic path towards denuclearization. 
a diplomatic path towards transforming DPRK, letting it you know, come out of its isolation, helping to, to integrate it into the international community and, and administration after administration has been ignored by North Korea. Now, uh, during that time, you were also uh, in charge of the New York Channel for dialogue with North Korea. What can you say about the role and the usefulness and the limitations of that New York Channel? So I have a I, I like to quip that with North Korea, the channel is never the problem. Mm-hmm. You are always talking to the right person. In no matter much, who that person is. Right. Because that is the person that Kim Jong-un and before him Kim Jong-il has decided will sit in front of you. Yeah. For whatever purpose it is that they they have. And so and, and I think, you know, hand and go the flip side of that coin is, of course, the limitations of leader to leadership diplomacy, which I think was evident you know, in Singapore and Hanoi. Uh, not that, you know, there was any shortcomings either in how prepared the U.S. president was or, or you know, were we too hasty? Were we rewarding North Korea? But, you know, for years we had heard, oh, if only the leaders could talk, hmm. that we could have some breakthrough in understanding. Indeed, the leaders talk, and there was no such breakthrough. So when North Korea wants to talk, it's easy for them to talk. And, you know, it, it can be in it can be in New York, it can be in third part, third country, it can be in a, a track 1.5, it can be, you know, in Pyongyang itself. And when they're serious, you will have a serious interlocutor. And, and when they're not, it doesn't really matter who your interlocutor is. What do you think it's like being a, a North Korean diplomat in New York? Well, you know, these are talented men and women who, in spite of their orientation and, and the outcomes we usually have in terms of, of the diplomacy itself, really do a good job in representing their country, the DPRK. They are there for that purpose. And when you understand the purpose of diplomacy for North Korea, as I've, I've spoken to earlier, is very different than what diplomacy, we we would hope diplomacy, why we can't sit down and have a win-win conversation about a better world for the both of us. You know, it's just North Korea's goals of diplomacy are different. And so for the challenge of the North Korean diplomat is to faithfully represent their home countries, home capitals, interests and directives, and carry that message forward. It's, on the other hand, difficult for them, because I don't think there's many sympathizers left who see North Korea as a poor, simply misunderstood country that if we would just sit down and talk, somehow we can make some magical break breakthrough. So these are professionals in a very uh, demanding and difficult job. So in that regard, on a personal level, I'm, I'm inclined to have a little bit of respect for them. Mm-hmm. Now, in 2016, the year that uh, Donald Trump became president, you jumped ship and joined the uh... Oh, you became senior defense intelligence expert for North Korea and U.S. Forces Korea. That was, I guess, moving from the civilian intelligence community into the military intelligence community. Was there a, a difference in work culture? Did you have to get used to a new way of, of doing things? Oh, very much so. And uh, in, in a good way. I mean, intelligence is a single term that applies to so many different things in terms of how we do different collection analysis. And of course, the the purpose of the intelligence that we're providing is it trying to bring down a, a terrorist organization, stop a bombing, warn of a North Korea attack, talk about what the recent Central Military Commission meeting met, you know, everything from the very tactical to the very strategic. 
And that all comes together in U.S. forces Korea, because, you know, even if it had not been for the missile a month madness of 2016 to 2017, mm. the battle rhythm, as, as we so affectionately call it, in other words, the day-to-day grind of what you do, yeah. you know, that seven o'clock, that 8 a.m. briefing that you give, that you do a rehearsal for at 6.30, that you do a, a lower level rehearsal for at 4.30, that you come yeah. to work at three o'clock. This type of battle rhythm is is something that in the fit tonight, fit to fight tonight, yeah. ethos of ethos of the uh, U.S. forces Korea, the J-2 intelligence directorate is like right at the center of it. And, wow. and, and having been there again for, for the missile launches of 2016 and 2017, First of all, working with the outstanding missile analysts we had in the uh, office there, you know, understanding uh, the performance of the missiles, the the surprise and how to get that quickest information out to the commander, out to customers back in Washington. And then, of course, as we looked at how we were responding to North Korea's uh, accelerated misbehavior, you know, a lot of discussions going on uh, across what we call the defense intelligence enterprise. So it was really interesting to be in a senior analytic position as the senior analyst for the command at, at such a dynamic time. It also allowed me to be uh, the briefer for many of the congressional delegations, mm. foreign dignitaries, senior officials, defense and non-defense from the United States, and, and, and help shape our understanding of what was actually going on at the time. In um, very briefly, in 2017, during that period of fire and fury and the talk of buttons and and bloody nose strikes, how close were we to things getting really hot here in South Korea? You know, all I can say is nobody I knew sent their dependents home. And, you know, I, 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 I first arrived in Korea in 1982 in April. Yeah. And I remember at the time being told, you know, Kim Kim Jong Il has promised his father Kim Il Sung that for his 70th birthday he would reuni- reunify the peninsula. Mm-hmm. So I spent the first two weeks of April in this kind of hypersensitive. You know, are the is the North coming? Is the North coming? Yeah. And then what else do we have? We've got our team spirit exercise at around that time, and then we got North Korea's own winter training cycle. It's it's their million man forces always. You don't hear about it often, but there are million man forces out there doing training as well. And I was in Korea for the Burma bomb blast and mm-hmm. the Korean airline shoot down. A lot of periods where we thought, you know, that we were going to war. And and what what's true actually is that, you know, the U.S. and its position there on the peninsula is so crucial to maintaining peace and stability. North Korea knows that any you know over the top actions would be met with rapid. Uh, response by Combined Forces Command, and the U.S. is fully behind the defense of the Republic of Korea. And so, you know, over four decades, getting a sense of learning how to read the propaganda, the threats, the warnings, my button's bigger than your button's, where I turn Seoul into a sea of fire. There was nothing, you know, the the missile launches were strategically distressing in terms of their frequency and the success that North Korea was having. But it never appeared that, you know, we were on a developmental cycle that was going to do culminate in anything other than some type of pivot to diplomacy. In the middle of 2017, I started to think about the Winter Olympics. Mm-hmm. 
And I said, this is going to be the ideal opportunity for North Korea to pivot to a charm offensive to undermine all of the pressure and sanctions that had been building up over time, particularly with Russia and China siding with us in the Security Council, and that a pivot to diplomacy was the logical next step of North Korea. And, And that's exactly what happened. Wow. Did you put that down in writing somewhere and uh, lock it up in a in a bank vault to pull that out later on? That, that's oh, quite oh a... yeah, absolutely. And, and and then not only that, once 2018 began to be under get underway as, you know, in the March, we we hear from the the director of the National Security Office that he's been in and out of Pyongyang and Kim Jong-un has rearticulated a commitment to denuclearization of the whole Korean Peninsula. And if we didn't face any military threat. And if our system was guaranteed, we wouldn't need a single nuclear weapon. Yeah. In no way a formula should be interpreted as Kim Jong-un has agreed to denuclearize. You know, we I gave it about a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you look at the history of these types of charm offenses, you know, high-level North-South talks in the 91-92 time period, uh, Kim Dae-jung, other other periods where there's been this thawing and these historic documents that are pieces of paper, pieces of scrap paper, pulled out for propaganda purposes later and accusations of failure to live up to this declaration or that joint statement. You know, it was clear that what was transpiring in 2018 would be a a short-lived, a charm offensive. And by the end of 2018, you know, we already saw North Korea losing interest in, in working with the Moon Jae-in administration. They couldn't say no to Hanoi. Mm. They had to take the invitation to come to the DMZ, but by you know the end of 2019, it was over for uh, DPRK's engagement with the U.S. Again, we've been there, saw it before, and so also I was in Korea then in in April 2019 as the missile launches recommenced. Mm. A little bit interesting to mention, different from 2016 to 2017. 2016 to 2017 was all about threatening the U.S. with an ICBM. Yeah, class missile that could carry a nuclear device. 2019, it was the focus on on shorter range missiles that could hold South Korean targets at risk. But in any case, the breakout from diplomacy and the shift towards what we began to see toward the end of 2019 and 2020 was predictable. During your time with USFK, you received an order of national security merit from the president of the Republic of Korea. Was that President Moon? Yes, it was indeed. It was President Moon Jae-in. Uh, can you say a couple of words about that? That's quite interesting. Well, you know, it's first of all, whenever you get an award like that, you you always remember that it's the effort of the people who who put it in that's really remarkable more than the accomplishments that you've had over the the period. Because not everybody gets many people don't get those when they deserve them. So mm-hmm. you know, just it was uh, reflecting on when I I left the command in in uh, 2020 on on the contributions I had made. Uh, for four years. I'm very thankful that, you know, our ROK colleagues at the time, you know, within the uh, Combined Forces Command, our share, our combined intelligence element is the uh, C2, right? So C for combined, unlike the J2 in USFK. So for our C2 colleagues that actually took the time to do that drafting and, and then put it through the process, I'm just very thankful for it. Now, your, uh, the last part of your uh, career was as a national intelligence officer for North Korea from 2020 to 2023. How did this differ from your previous roles? Uh, well, you know, so the NIO is, is uh, I had previously served as a deputy North Korea mission manager and then uh, for a short period, the North Korea mission manager before I went to the White House. 
And in that role, we oversaw, you know, it's a more programmatic mission management type position. And there is a degree to which you oversee analytic and collection programs, but the real hardcore analytic work where you oversee the production of IC-wide strategic analysis, make sure that the, the key intelligence questions of the president and other senior leaders are reflected in programs of analysis across analytic shops, you know, providing support to the policymaking process all the way up to the president. That role is reserved for the NIO, who is essentially the senior analyst, as it were, for the community. That said, you know, as senior analyst, that doesn't mean, you know, your word carries, it's your, your responsibility to integrate the variety of voices that come together to speak uh, for the intelligence community. And so it was a great, great kind of uh, culminating assignment for me at the end of some 40 years. Now, the uh, the Biden administration hasn't been able to do much with or on North Korea since its inauguration for a number of reasons, and surely chief among them is that North Korea doesn't want to talk. So was there much to do in terms of consulting with policy policymakers uh, during your time as NIO? No, absolutely. I mean, you know, as, as you know, there's a, on the North Korea issue, there's so many related issues. First and foremost, as you can imagine, is the uh, alliance, our, our uh, relationship with the Republic of Korea, our, our shared uh, deterrence efforts, our, our work with, with Japan, another uh, country that's keenly uh, uh, concerned with developments in North Korea, uh, you know, multilateral diplomacy, particularly we saw the just a big significant accomplishment in the most recent trilateral summit. But, you know, the work of the Biden administration to, to strengthen multilateral capacity in the region and how we uh, did that in a way that could, as part of those efforts, continue to maintain a certain level of pressure on North Korea, continue to remind Pyongyang of the unacceptability of its nuclear program and to keep that that international uh, consensus on the need for denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. A lot of diplomacy up in New York with both Security Council members, elected members, and then non-members, other members of the, the General Assembly, yeah. to uh, keep them informed, to keep them uh, in the know on developments in North Korea, uh, particularly as North Korea, the threat expanded in terms of the credible surge in and numbers of launches uh, beginning mm -hmm. in 2019. So you had both the very destabilizing impact of the frequency of the launches, the fact that these launches are taking place in a very dangerous MO without prior notifications. And then, of course, expansion of North Korea's nefarious behavior into the, into the cyber realm. Uh, there was never uh, a time, even with the absence of active US DPRK diplomacy, that policymakers' attentions could be diverted from North Korea. It just, you know, there's been that that continued sustained focus on North Korea mm. and that warrants the continued uh, analytic uh, insights of the intelligence community to help shape. Now, I've still got lots more things I'd love to ask you, but we've already gone on for about 50 minutes. So I'll just cut it down to one last topic and hope that you'll come back on for a, a subsequent interview one day. Uh, I want to talk about the the Leap Day deal of 2012, which you've mentioned already in our conversation. I'm wondering what lessons were learned or were not learned from that experience. This is something uh, a a deal that was struck at the early in the early days of Kim Jong Un's time as leader of North Korea, which was a time of uncertainty but also potential 
instability or risk on both sides. Was it a missed opportunity in your eyes? How do you look back on that? So, you know, I, I was directly involved as the White House representative to those talks. The late Steve Bosworth opened them up in July of 2011. We had another meeting in the fall in Geneva. And then finally, we had the, the culminating meeting in, in uh, Beijing in, in 2012. And the, the Leap Day understanding was an effort to, the, the whole approach was an effort to try to meet North Korea at its level. I remember early in, in the, the early years of the Bush administration, there was a bit of a, a debate between nonproliferation experts who had a, a very well time-tested approach to such negotiations, particularly as it took place with the Soviet Union, uh, later Russia, and the, the, the regional experts, the Asia experts who said, you know, we have to do in negotiations, you come to broad understandings, you build trust, and then once you build trust, then you can begin to get into the details and iron out the details as time goes on. Yeah. And, and so I had a discussion with our North Korean interlocutors that elements of it actually showed up in, in DPRK media that, you know, the idea that we could have leaps and bounds in potentially building confidence some bold confidence building measures, particularly as Kim Jong-un was exploring what direction he wanted to take the country, having just assumed uh, power. And North Korea came back and, and essentially said, okay, we understand it. Let, let's, uh, what do you have to offer? We, we put 240,000 metric tons of nutritional assistance on the table. We you know, talked about uh, US companies that were interested in going into North Korea and just how we could build a new path forward in the US DPRK realm, while at the same time using the Leap Day understanding as a, a launching board to go back to Dalyutai, to go back to six party talks. You know, the six day Leap Day understanding was not to be the, the departure point mm -hmm. for US DPRK negotiations, Leap Day understanding to the next level but that we would go back to Dalyutai and we would address the hard issues like, you know, HEU, et cetera. And there was some response from our interlocutors. Again, when they approached us so early in 2012, after Kim Jong-un had, had uh, taken power as after his father's death, there was, there was no way in which we were naive enough to say some, something as simplistic as, Oh, he was educated in Switzerland, so he must be a progressive thinker. So yeah. there's going to be a new, new, different North Korea. It was just simply a, a low-risk effort by us to explore whether there was some path that could be created to move forward. When North Korea told us two or three weeks later that they planned on conducting a, a tapered-owned launch that would undermine, that would violate the agreement that we had on missile launches being suspended, uh, it was clear that uh, they were not yet committed to the denuclearization, denuclearization process. I would add, though, after that, that it was, you know, we still kept very robust diplomacy following the April 13th, 2012 uh, tapered on launch. We tried to pick up the pieces. We wanted to move forward. North Korea came back and said, well, we don't know if President Obama will be around. And, and then when after President Obama is reelected, uh, rather than picking up where we had left off, we have another tapered on launch in December of 20, 
2012, I'm sorry. And then, of course, the nuclear test, Byung-Jin Declaration, the unraveling of it all in 2013 as the North decided to go down a different path. So in retrospect, I, I actually have a certain kind of affinity for affection for the uh, the, the leap day understanding in as much as it, it was a great test of North Korea. The fact that they failed mm. it is regrettable, mm. but that that uh, having attempted this and having given North Korea yet another chance to walk through that door, to take the, the exit ramp, and, and then to see them fail from an analytic perspective is just a reminder. October 2002, Jim Kelly goes into Pyongyang. We have no HEU program. Six party talks, got to show us the HEU, got to show us the HEU. We don't have any program. Leap day understanding, we got to take this to the next level. Can't get to the HEU. Hanoi 2019, right? Yeah. Where's the HEU? It isn't there. And so for, when, when you come up with the, the conclusions that we have in terms of assessing uh, the prospects for North Korea coming back to the negotiating table in a sincere manner, it's just another data point that we can, and more importantly, perhaps, as you look at, again, I do, I, I'm serious in saying, uh, you know, having watched the approaches going back to the Bush administration, the Clinton administration, these have been good faith efforts led by some just outstanding diplomats along the way, and shame on North Korea for missing those opportunities. Okay, uh, last quick question. Are you writing a memoir or planning to? I do not. I do not plan on on, on writing one. Uh, I don't think I have that much important to say, but I certainly uh, want to take advantage of opportunities like today. Yeah. And I thank you, Jacko, for, for arranging this because it's a good opportunity uh, to have these types of discussions and uh, look for, if we do this again, some even uh, faster uh, hardballs, uh, fastballs yes. to be pitched. I'm ready for them. <laughs> Oh, great. Well, I do, I do thank you very much for coming on the NK News podcast today, Sid Sider, and I do in, in want to invite you back on because I've still got more questions here to go on with. So thanks again, and uh, yeah, hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks so much. Listeners, just before this podcast ends, I want to let you know that uh, we've invited Sid Sider to come back on the NK News podcast for a second episode so that I can ask him some more of the questions that we didn't get to talk about today. Uh, but I also want to give you a chance to send in your questions to Ask Sid to take advantage of his 42 years of work for the U.S. government trying to understand and make sense of North Korea. So please send in your questions to podcast at nknews.org. That's podcast at nknews.org. And let me know what you'd like me to ask Sid when he comes back on for a second round of the interview. Thank you very much. Imagine having the most wide-ranging news, analysis, and opinion on North Korea at your fingertips. Sounds great, right? Well, it's possible with NK News. They publish a truly diverse selection of unique articles every business day and provide you with valuable newsletters and alerts. Opinion writers and journalists include regular podcast guests like Andre Lankov, Jongmin Kim, Chad O'Carroll, Colin Zwerko, Niels Weisenzer, Peter Ward, and Shreyas Reddy. And because I know you'll love the product as much as I do, here's something special for you. Use the code PODCAST to get a $100 discount on your subscription. Redeem this podcast-only special today by visiting nknews.org discount. That's nknews.org discount. So what are you waiting for? Sign up for NK News today and get ahead of the headlines on North Korea.
Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of our podcast episode for today. Our thanks go to Brian Betts and Alana Hill for facilitating this episode and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, and fixes the audio levels. Thank you, and listen again next time. Music